I almost want to pick on our three college students because they're just in a row. In, in fact, I'm going to be, yeah, I think I want to do that just for fun. I don't normally pick on you all, but Connor, you look like you're ready to go with question 13. And if you'll go ahead and read the question, answer, and then just we'll go from there. Would you please? All right. Thank you so much, the three of you. Um, so here we have these three questions, and they really do go together, as you can see. You remember that we were looking last week at the uh, uh, fact that you, you remember we said that God exercises his eternal decree through creation and providence. And as we talked about providence, God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. In particular, we looked at the special act of providence that he did when he created Adam, and that was he entered into a covenant with him, the covenant of life, sometimes known as the covenant of works. And in that covenant relationship, God had put before Adam a very, very simple uh, set of instructions. You are to go out and, and subdue the earth and fill it and, you know, you're basically to work the ground and all that other stuff. Everything is given to you to enjoy and so on, but you are not to eat of this one tree in the middle of the garden. So we get to this first question that we're looking at today, verse 13, and it says, uh, or question 13, and it says, did they stay in that estate, that is in that condition in which they were originally created. No, they did not because they sinned against God. That immediately makes you think, well, what is sin? And that comes up in question 14, where we're going to spend most of our time. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So we're going to want to unpack that phrase. And then the next question uh, just naturally uh, uh, follows. Well, okay, they sinned against God, and, and this is what sin is, but what was the particular sin? And it was eating the forbidden fruit. So we're going to take all of those together, and let's go back to the garden and place ourselves there in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, and it's there that we want to spend a little bit of time. God had set before Adam and Eve two very clear alternatives. The issue was not muddy. The issue was not ambiguous. It was absolutely clear. There were two alternatives set before him. One was the path of perfect obedience. The path of perfect obedience. Uh, this would be the one that would lead to life everlasting. The other, and, and uh, by the way, in case uh, you want to look up or write down some scripture passages for that, uh, there's a wonderful passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul addresses this directly. He says, the man that does uh, God's commandments shall live by them. Um, I think there's a footnote. I should have put those in my notes. <laughs> so let's actually look that up. There's a footnote that the ESV has that I think is a little more illuminating. Maybe some of you, if you turn there faster than I can turn might find it, but it's um, an alternate reading. Uh, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith, uh, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And there's the... Um, Oh, no, the footnote is for the previous one. Well, for the righteous shall live by faith. So, um, but you can actually, so they didn't put it in here. But in the Greek, the one who does them shall live by them. Um, 
is the one who does the law uh, or the one who lives shall do so by, by doing them. The them is a reference back to the commandment that he was just talking about. So it's not so clear the way English is written, but the idea is in the same way that the righteous shall live by faith can be translated as uh, those who are to be, you know, those who, are, who live are the ones who are made righteous by faith. That kind of language is what we're seeing here. The point being, had they obeyed, had they done the law, they would have lived. They would have had eternal life. So that's the one path, the path of perfect obedience. But the other path that was put before Adam was that of disobedience. And it was made very clear that that was a path that led to death. Right in uh, Genesis two seventeen, for in the day that you eat of the, of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall surely die. So there was no ambiguity here. It was absolutely clear that this was the path. Now, before we unpack it, I want to say this again. I know that we've looked at this again and again, but the Catechism clearly teaches the story of Adam and Eve uh, as being true. And more important than the Catechism, the Scripture passages that we look back on all treat this as true. Jesus, when he speaks about Adam, treats it as being true. This is not a metaphor. Uh, we've already you know, looked at the fact that there are those who believe because of their commitment to theistic evolution, an evolution that God is superintending uh, all the events of. We've seen that some people claim that there was no special creation of Adam, uh, that, but rather that he was uh, a hominid or some other you know, lesser uh, uh, life form that was then endowed with what makes us truly human. And we've already established and shown why that's not the case. But the same thing happens here. And you will find pastors, you will find teachings and books and so on that will say, well, of course, we believe in Adam and Eve are true. But they, by, when they say true, they mean true in a moral sense, in that there's a story here. There's a, a parable uh, significance to this. Uh, the idea that each and every one of us has to make a choice as to our own sin and so on. Uh, again, there's a number of problems with that. The first one is the fact that the Scripture itself never seems to at all give any indication that Adam and Eve are anything other than historical persons. If you had a time machine and you went back, you would actually see a man and a woman you know, in the garden doing exactly what we read about, right? The other reason that we need to get into that it's so important is because of what we looked at last week. We talked about covenants, and we said that, Adam, that God made a covenant with Adam, and he made him the head of the whole race. Remember that? And we looked at Romans chapter 5, and we saw in Romans chapter 5, starting in verses 12 and following, that it shows that Adam, what he did, is imputed, that is, counted towards all those whom he represents which is the entirety of the human race. So we're all born uh, in sin because you have sin imputed to us, even though you've actually not committed a single sin. There is no age of accountability or kids are innocent and all this other stuff. From the very moment of conception, Psalm, 5, uh, uh, Psalm 51 verse 5 tells us, in sin already did my mother conceive me. That's been misunderstood, by the way, a little sidebar here. Some people say, oh, my mother conceived me by having me sinfully, i.e. out of wedlock. That's not at all what it means in the Hebrew. It means from the moment of my conception, I was already sinful. Jesus, of course, represents a new human race, those who are redeemed, and it's the same principle. What the head does is accounted, imputed to those whom he represents. So if there is no Adam and Eve, 
and especially Adam, who's our federal head in that regard, there is no imputation. And so those who claim that Adam and Eve are simply metaphors uh, for, you know, the fact that all of us have to make a choice have completely erased the whole covenant structure from Scripture. And if that's the case, there is no salvation because if it's up to you individually, your temptation, your very first temptations, and you choose sin, therefore you fall, then it's going to be up to you individually to guess what? To redeem yourself. You see, this is why all these things hold together. So even though that's not directly in this question, I do want to address it again, that the catechism question, uh, and more importantly, the scriptures that stand behind it, make very clear that Adam and Eve were true historical people, not just parables or metaphors. But, okay, we've got Adam uh, representing us. He is our federal head, and he has these two choices, the path of perfect obedience and the path of disobedience. One very clearly leads to life everlasting. The other one leads to death. So that's the choice. And we know as we read in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam made the choice to ultimately disobey God. And we want to unpack that a little bit and take a look at then what we need. By the way, we're on questions 13, 14, and 15, uh, somewhere around page 870-ish. Uh, anybody know what page that is? Hey, there we go. That's the one we're on. Okay. What we're going to learn from this is not just studying their sin as if, was, as, as if it was separate, but it is the proto-sin, the very first sin. And, every, and that's why question 14 is sandwiched between 13 and 15 that both have to do with Adam's sin. Because... As we study their sin, we will learn what sin is, and therefore we can understand what sin is for us. Because nowadays, the word sin is on the you know, politically incorrect list of words. You're not supposed to talk about it. There are no such things as sins. Um, as you know, we do quite a bit of counseling here in this church. Uh, and as I interact with folks who do counseling, uh, many counselors today, many psychologists and so on, will tell you and that, that they never use that word because that word, what does it imply? Guilt, judgment, oh yeah. And there's one third word that often comes in, the R word. Okay, I didn't hear what you said, but the... Responsibility, yeah. But you actually, you hit on all those words. When you say to somebody, you know, uh, this is a sin, there is the implication of guilt. And there is judgment. Not just that you're judging them with an objective standard, but that you're implying that judgment ought to come on them for their behavior. There ought to be consequences. That's really what the judgment is. And that they are responsible for their actions. And if you've seen anything in the, you know, the 20th century, was this, this, uh, uh, which has obviously flowed into us here, is the century of managerial and therapeutic um, worldview. Everything is therapeutic. And so we've gotten to the point where uh, uh, we come to you and we tell you you're not responsible. And that now is in its, well into its third generation. It really uh, hit its stride in child rearing in the 60s with Dr. Benjamin Spock. And it is now the norm. And we see it in our schools. We see the complete and utter chaos in, um, in the adults that have grown up under that educational system and so on. Um, 
So it really is uh, all very, very important stuff. So we don't talk about sin very much, but we need to bring it to the fore and we need to be able to deal with it uh, uh, realistically and say, what is it that we do? You know, so much of people, you know, today uh, uh, describe sin, if they even do talk about it, with the wrong standards. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're, there's two things that we see going on here. And this is going to be not the first time that we deal with this concept. So we're going to come back to this concept again and again and again. But there are two things that are happening here. We see that Adam has both freedom and ability. Now these two are very often misunderstood and confused one for the other. Adam has a choice. The two simple choices. Obedience and disobedience. You might call that, let's just, you know, we'll call that uh, good and we'll call that evil. These are moral choices. And when it comes to a moral choice, those are the only two options you have. That which is good, that which is evil. That of obedience, which implies that God has told us what to do, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, how important it is that God has told us to do something. Because without that, then we don't know what's good or evil, as we'll see. But freedom and ability. So was Adam free? Did he have free will to choose in the garden either obedience, which was the good choice, or disobedience, which was the evil choice? Did he have freedom? He did. Okay. Did he have the ability? That's a separate issue. Did he have the ability? Yes, he did. That's right, yeah, yeah. So he had the ability to do both, to do, do both good and evil. Now, one of the things that we talk about is that in our fallen nature, you sometimes hear people saying, well, we don't have the freedom anymore. We lack free will, and that's not quite true. There's a whole chapter in the Westminster Confession, chapter nine, on free will. If anybody ever tells you reform people or Calvinists, you know, which is a disparaging attempt, whenever they tell us Calvinists, if they ever tell you that we don't believe in free will, that's complete and utter nonsense. What happens at the fall, and again, we're going to deal with this more specifically later on. What happens at the fall is that Adam, the human race, loses the ability to do good. But they don't lose the freedom. So that when you become a sinner... You're still free. In fact, if you're not free, you're no longer a moral agent. You're no longer human. You're an automaton. So we always have free will. But in our fallen nature, we lack the ability to do anything that is good. There's a grid that theologians tend to use, and we're going to go back to this again and again. So that's why I'm introducing it now, even if we're not going to unpack it fully now. I don't know if you all can see that, but in this grid here, this is pre-fall. So this is in the garden, right? And man has both the freedom and the ability to do both good and evil. That's maybe not the way I wanted to do it. How do I want to write that? Uh, let's, let's put it this way. Uh, freedom, ability, freedom, ability. Let's do it that way. So before the fall, man has 
the freedom to do good and the freedom to do evil. He also has, oh no, that's wrong. Freedom to do good, the freedom to do evil. And he has the ability to do good and the ability to do evil. After the fall, in our sinful state, he has the freedom to do good and the freedom to do evil. But he no longer has the ability to do good. He can only do evil. Everything in our hearts. And, and, and if we doubt that, oh, but that little old lady, she's so kind and everything. Romans chapter 3 tells us that we do evil continually. Even our good actions are ultimately motivated not for the glory of God. And since Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that everything is to be done to the glory of God. We see that as aspirational, right? But if we really see what's being said, it's not just that it's aspirational, what we ought to be, and that we want to strive towards that, which is true. But the flip side of that is that everything ought to be. It's also prescriptive. Everything is to be done for the glory of God. And because it's not, in our fallen state, we're really unable to do what's good. Now, in our redeemed state, and by redeemed I mean on this side of glory. So we got that state, and then we're going to call this one here. Uh, let's just, yeah, let's call it glory when you're in heaven. Uh, in our redeemed state, do you still have freedom to do good? Yes. Do you still have freedom to do evil? Yes. And guess what? Your ability is restored. You're now able to do good and you're able to do evil. That's us as believers. We're able to do some things that are good, some things that are evil. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. Very, very clear. In the new heavens and the new earth, will you be free to do good? Will you be free? Will you have the moral freedom to do evil? Yeah, of course you will. You can always, you're always free. If, God, if you were not free, you'd be a robot in heaven, Right? God wants to have a relationship with you as a person who wants him. So he's, you never, if you notice, you never lose your free will. But in heaven, ability-wise, guess what? You lose the ability to do evil. So you can see that the pre-fall state is similar to the redeemed state. The sinful state is similar to the glory, except that you, in one case, you lose the ability to do good, and, you, and the, in the other, you lose the ability to do evil. You will have a choice to disobey God in heaven uh, because if you didn't have the choice, you would not be human. But you will not want to. Remember, we already talked about this. Your free will is driven by what you want. It is your wants and inclinations and desires. You have never, ever, ever chosen to do anything that you did not want to do. You may not have liked the circumstances put before you that limited your choices, but if the choices that are before you, you always choose the one that you most want. Well, your wants are driven by your nature, who you are, what you are. When you are regenerated, you're, you're made a new creature, that means that you are given the, uh, restored in the ability to do good. That's part, one of the characteristics of your new nature. And when you are finally fully redeemed, Paul talks about our redemption uh, in, in the sense that, in one sense, it's very incomplete now. At the resurrection, you will be restored in your ability uh, to do, you know, your body will be restored and everything, but you'll be restored in your righteousness and your holiness. And so you will be incapable, not incapable because you're, literally your hand will be tied behind your back, but you will be so pure in your nature and your desires that you simply will not want to, even though the choice will be right before you. Does that make sense? Rob? Oh, absolutely. Exactly. 
That's exactly it. And I think that's very important to understand because it safeguards our freedom. And it completely reminds us that it's not God working in your brain and, you know, making you like, I want to do this. But, and you hear people, like even here, you hear people sitting there and saying, well, what, what if I want to choose Christ, but I'm not one of the elect? You see, that, that, that whole thing, it doesn't work that way. Unless God chooses to work in you, you will never want to choose Christ. So you see, the whole doctrine of election is not, you know, the bugbear that people think, oh, it's just meant to keep certain people out of heaven. Election is offered to sit there and say, you, you never wanted to. You had no way to get from here to there. But God, in his grace, has chosen some. We don't know how many. It could be a vast majority. It could be a minority. Who knows? But he's chosen some. And because he's chosen and he's the one doing it, election is actually given as a doctrine of comfort because it tells us it was never up to you in the first place. You had nothing to do with your first birth. You have nothing to do with your second birth. <laughs> you see, that's basically what that's, what that's saying. But this is very important because it sets up the stage for us to understand where Adam really is. And let me look at our time here. Adam has both freedom and ability uh, to follow either one of these paths, the path unto life or the path unto disobedience. I'm sorry, the, the, between which state? Uh, yes, so if you can look on here, you'll see that in our pre-fall, we had both the ability, the freedom and the ability to do good and evil. And you'll see that in every one of those states, we never ever lose freedom to do both. You will always be free because that's what defines us as human beings. We are moral free agents. Dogs aren't, earthworms aren't. Only human beings made in the image of God have a moral component. But in, in glory, we will not have the ability to do evil. This tells us something, even though, uh, and I'm going to talk about it in today's uh, sermon, God declared the creation very good. What did he did not declare it? Perfect. What? What? Oh, heresy. My pastor just said the creation wasn't perfect. It was very good. Uh, you can tell, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just using biblical words because, I don't know, talk to God about it. That's what he said. But it's very clear that there was something more because the whole covenant had the idea, the whole covenant of life had the idea that there was something more that would be achieved through obedience. You see? That was there. So we have to recognize that this was a staged plan for God. Because uh, very often we think everything was perfect before the fall. And no, if that was ca the case, there was no reward that could be offered. There was nothing to work for. He was already there. And, and what we tend to think of is, oh, he just, the promise was you get to stay where you're at if you obey, but if you disobey, then, you know, you fall. But no, no, there, there was a promise of something more. And that was a life everlasting that would be confirmed in that. So that's very, very important because it really brings now to bear, you know, uh, uh, our understanding of what our sin is. And so let's go ahead and unpack a little bit uh, um, of that definition in verse 14. Are we, are we good with the whole freedom versus ability thing? 
Is that okay? Um, so question 14 tells us that sin has one, or two, one of two components, right? Uh, of course, it's old language. Any want of conformity. Want here does, is not the word desire, but it's the, it's the word lack. So you either conform or you transgress the law of God. And either one of those is sin. So uh, uh, to lack conformity means that the law of God tells you, for example, to do something. So you are to honor the Sabbath day, right? The Lord's day today. So we're to honor that. Okay, I fail to do that. That's a want of conformity unto. Transgression is when I do something that I was not supposed to do. You shall not steal. So I go, you know, to the corner, uh, you know, milk store and, uh, uh, or whatever, grocery store, and, and then I stick them up. Okay, so I've transgressed. Can you see those two different things? Very often we call that what? Sins of omission and commission. Yeah, you commit a sin, you commit a transgression, or you omit to do something positive that the law teaches. Um, I, I could say more about that but uh, because of our time. I, I think that you, that's been around long enough that I, I think that's probably clear, right? That uh, sin can be any one of those things. The, the key part I want us to focus on, though, is that second part of the question. Sin is any, and then it describes it, want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And now, the reason I want to focus there is that that introduces an objective standard when we're talking about what sin is. In Romans 5 that we read last week, right at the very beginning, Paul says that there is no sin where there is no law. Why is that? Hmm? There's no standard. Oh, okay. So you don't know. And this is one of the most interesting things uh, is that we realize that God alone, by virtue of being the creator, he alone has the right to say what is right or wrong. He alone has the right to define what is good or evil. This is an important point because it tells us that objectively there is nothing good apart from God. Okay. In other words, if there were a standard apart from God for what is good, then God would not be God. So let's take something like uh, like murder. Okay. So we say that murder is uh, is wrong, or, or lying. Is, you know, you might say, well, um, murdering re- requires bodies and all this other stuff. God doesn't have a body, or whatever. so. Let's talk about uh, lying. Uh, we're told in Scripture that God cannot lie and does not lie. Okay. Is lying wrong because God said it's wrong, or was there an objective standard above and outside of God? And see, if there was an objective standard somewhere that said that lying is wrong, and God submits to that, and God says, well, I'm the guy in charge of the whole universe, so I better be in line with that. He's now submitted to that. He's no longer God. Whatever it is that set that standard, that would be God. Does that make sense? So when we read passages, even though it's not directly what we're looking at, but 1 John uh, 4.8, God is love. We begin to see, and Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These things are actually defined by God. You don't know love. It's not that God is loving, but the very definition of what love is is inherent in his very character. 
what is true is determined by God. He says what is true, so he makes it so. So God's law is extraordinarily important, much more important than even Christians often uh, want to understand. God's word, when he speaks, it has this absolute value to it because of that. Um, so he determines what is right and wrong. So you might sit there and say, that just is so stupid, you can't eat of the tree. I mean, good night. You can eat. I mean, what, what a minor thing. He, the whole world fell because he just grabbed some fruit from a tree? It's not like he killed anybody. It's not like, you know. But we can only understand the gravity of Adam's sin and thereby understand the gravity of our own sin when we begin to understand the importance that God alone gets to dictate what is right or wrong. When we sit there and we say, it wasn't that big deal. He ate of a fruit. What are we doing? We're judging God. We're passing sentence. We're saying, is he good? Well, not knowing exactly that church, I'm not sure that I could answer that directly. Um, but, I mean, certainly the things I've seen ever since the so-called modernist movement of, uh, you know, 1910s, 1920s, 100 years now, uh, they do have a social gospel. And so, it's all, you know, they want to look at um, the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, turn the other cheek, and we're all brothers, and all this other stuff. But, yeah, they want to do away with the idea of uh, blood sacrifice. In fact, uh, I think uh, one of the translations that uh, I appreciate, please, in putting it in context, is what's now called the Good News Translation. It was at one time called Today's English Version. It came out in the 60s. It was the first accessible translation. It's not perfect by far, and it's not a word-for-word. It's a thought-for-thought translation or whatever. But the guy who was the main translator on it, interestingly enough, um, had, this is the 60s, so there still was um, uh, um, an academic rigor and there still was a a commitment to certain uh, things that you had to do. So he did translate as faithfully as he was able those passages that deal with Jesus' sacrifice. But he, in his his interviews, would say that he was um, disgusted or repulsed, I don't remember the exact words, by the whole idea of blood sacrifice. It's so barbarian. So, so you know, I, I don't know where these folks are coming from. I would have to know the church and what their commitments are. But, yeah, I mean, um, the devil will usually under, undermine at some point the whole of it, law and gospel, law and gospel. You need both. Uh, Phil. So we looked at that last week in Romans chapter 5. I can direct uh, you there uh, again, Romans five twelve. Uh, and Paul makes a very important point. Uh, in, in Romans five twelve and 13, he says that the law still applied even from Adam, he says, until, the, until Sinai. Because a lot of people might sit there and say, well, there was no law. And then Paul says, if there was no law, there would be no death. Death is the consequence for breaking the law. So there was a law, the law that's on your hearts. He's, and he said, even though they did not transgress in the same way that Adam did, in other words, you don't have to eat of the tree in the middle you know, of the garden for you to be a sinner. You're already a sinner by virtue of imputation. And then he goes on for the rest of the passage to talk about the first Adam and through the transgression of one man all fell. And now through the second Adam, through the obedience and the righteousness of one man, the many will be saved. So he's establishing that idea of headship. Um, there was law, and that law, even if it... Even if it there was more to it because the law is put in our hearts as Paul tells us so that we do know right and wrong and he tells us in Romans chapter 2 
that the pagan already knows that you shouldn't be going, killing people and so on. It's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's inherent what Catholics call natural law, which uh, is not really the best, uh, best term for it. But there is that law. But even if there wasn't, even if the only law had been don't eat of that tree, the fact that Adam was our representative makes us sinful by imputation and therefore there's death. And so he argues, yeah, there always has been law. But the, the yes. No, no, go ahead, Matt. That, that's, that's good. You guys are asking questions. Well, it's both uh, what is written. And by the way, his writing it was not the first time we saw the law. I mean, you can read Genesis. There's plenty of law until Sinai. Sinai falls under um, a, a covenant. And so um, it's given after a redemption to tell him this is how you are to behave as redeemed people. Not obey this and you will be saved, but you've been saved. Therefore, live like saved people. And this is how you live. So I'm going to detail it for you. That's what the Ten Commandments do for us. That's why they still apply to us, because we are redeemed people. But it's not one or the other. It's that law, the Ten Commandments, is a summary of God's moral law. So that law, then, is an expression of the character of God. They're not divorced one from the other. And that's actually where I want to go with this, which is to sit there and say that because God is the only one who can determine what's right and wrong, we cannot know until he speaks. And it's one of the reasons that we make such a big deal about God's revelation, and you've heard us say that in the, in the garden, even in his unfallen state, man could have had no fruition of God unless God had revealed himself. Because God is so holy other, so transcendent, that we never on our own would have been able to just grab up and grab a hold of God, even in our pre-fall state, and have grabbed a hold of God on our own. God has to condescend to our weakness and reveal our, himself to us speak to us in language, which is foreign to God, right? He doesn't need language. He doesn't have lips and teeth and, and tongue to form and needs air. God does all those things in order for us to be able to understand. And he spoke, and it's his speaking that sets the, the standard. And that's where I want to focus. And that's why when we go to the garden, and we still have a little bit of time, where does Satan put his attack? Genesis chapter 3. Verse 3, where does he put his attack? What does he go after? The word. the word. You see the point? He goes after the word. Did God surely say? You see, he's making Adam and Eve doubt God's word. Why? Because the word is the objective standard of what's right or wrong. And that helps to illuminate most people today, if they are going to use the word sin, do not define sin in relationship to God's word, right? And if we do see it that way, then we realize God's word, the Ten Commandments, is a summary of what is right or wrong, simply because he said that that's what's right or wrong. There is no standard. There's no questioning. There's no, well, we don't think that's big enough. Oh, so I use the Lord's name in vain. I, you know, stub my toe on... On, on, on the furniture, and I say, oh, you know, oh, that's not that bad. I'm sorry, but God said. God doesn't say, these are the green-coated commandments. Now, these are the yellow ones. Now, here's the red ones. You know, the, no, they're, they're all the same, right? When, when we begin to mess with it, we're the ones who are going after God and saying, you know, we're not just quite sure if you're God enough, which is exactly what happened in the garden, because we've already said that Adam 
had the ability to do good and, and every, every good thing was offered to him. He had any incentive to do good. Also, it was very, very clear what the penalty was. He had every disincentive to disobey. You know, you're not going to get much out of this except, oh, I don't know, dying. So it's very, very clear you know, that this was, he was not fooled, he was not tricked. It really shows the perversity of what he did. And the whole thing was, hmm, I don't know if, God, did you really say that? And Adam, you know, uh, uh, we all say, well, Adam didn't do it, it was all Eve. But he's responsible, he's right there. That whole idea that says, and he gave the fruit, you know, to, uh, she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. He was there. He's not like, you know, he was off doing good God things. And here comes his wife. And, uh, oh, I brought you, you know, a snack. Oh, thanks, babe. You know, <laughs> no, he knew that he was doing what God had told him not to do. It's perverse. It's perverse. And that's what I want us to grab a hold of here as we end today's lesson. God had dictated this is what we're to do and so on and so on. Satan attacks at that very moment, at that very point. Did God surely say that you're going to die? He, you will not die. He had to undermine that. And our response was one of undermining it. As I say we, because we're wrapped up in him. Our response was one of, of saying, you know, God, thanks for the advice, but I got this. What we're essentially saying, every time that you sin, that's why I want us to look at, at chapter, uh, uh, question 14. Once you understand Adam's sin, you understand your sin. And every time that you sin, what you're saying is, God, thank you for the advice on what's best for me, but I know better. Isn't that what you're saying? Your word is not good enough, God. I'm going to take my word. My, my thinking, my, ration, my rationale trumps yours. Now, if you have kids, you've experienced this. Because you tell your kid, do this or don't do this because that is the best thing. You know that is the best thing for them. And what does a child do? Thanks, but no thanks. I've got this. I will make a choice on what's right or wrong. In other words, I will be God, which is why this whole idea is that of trying to grab a hold of it. I mean, do, you, do we then really see the perversity? Uh, I just heard uh, um, Alistair McGrath. You guys know him, Scottish guy? Uh, Scottish preacher, okay, up in, uh, I think he's still in Cleveland. Which, I don't know how the Scotsman ends up in Cleveland. That's that fate almost worth it death. But um, I, I wanted to show you this, but it takes, it's too much effort just to hook this up, just for one clip. So let's see if we can, um, well, I don't want to see any more Brittany Griner pictures, please. Let's get rid of all that. Notice what he says, he's talking about, ah, here it is. He's, okay, Uh, he's talking about um, all the different challenges we face culturally and, uh, you know, homosexuality and transgenderism and all this other stuff, but he says, that's not the point. Let's listen to what he has to say. I'm going to put it. To tamper with scripture. Why would I want to come up here and address these things this morning? Okay, here we go that acknowledges that we are not free to tamper with Scripture. Why would I want to come up here and address these things this morning? Only because of the Bible. We started, so we have to go. We're not free to tamper with the Bible. We're not at liberty to rewrite the Bible. 
to accommodate godless perspectives, whether it's a godless perspective on euthanasia or on abortion or on sexuality, whatever it might be, transgenderism. And in this arena right now, at this point in the, tw- in the 21st century here in America, within the framework of church, whatever you want to call church, big church, let everybody go in for the moment and think about this. The danger is an increasing danger that those who should know better are losing their convictions, not about sexual matters, but about the authority of the Bible. That is the issue. In all of these things, it is all from the Garden of Eden. The evil one came and said, did God really say did he really say that? They believed the lie and the rest followed. The same bullet is in his gun. Coming to the pastor and saying, but wait a minute, pastor. Does that what it really means? Is that what he really said? And those who are in positions of responsibility need to face that. If we lose conviction about the authority of the Bible, if we then become uncertain about it, then we lose our voice. If we then in turn become indifferent to the issue, then we're in real trouble. Okay, could you all hear that? I guess pretty well. You hear what he's saying. He's saying the issue is not abortion or euthanasia or uh, all the stuff on sexuality. And we can argue what it is. He says that behind it all is the issue, once again, of the authority of God's word, the authority of the Bible. And, and he says, yeah, it goes right back to the garden. And, and that's exactly the point that we're trying to get at here. Let's turn that down. And that is why it's so important for us to rec- recognize just the perversity of of Adam's sin. It's terrible because here you have a great and good and a holy God who has spoken. And we sit there and we say, yeah, I don't need what you're saying. I know more than you. I've got it covered. Uh, It's an extraordinarily dangerous position. And you can see what it's led to. The fall um, is the consequence. And it's, by the way, it's a very mild consequence. What? No, but there's murder and there's wars. and God could have annihilated everything. He could have sent everybody straight to hell. Uh, so the fall is rather a mild consequence, and actually we'll touch upon this briefly in the sermon today, um, and it's because he's set the stage for redemption, and you've got to be alive in order to be redeemed. So in his grace, it really is a gracious thing, uh, he's allowed the world to go forward. But um, going back to this, as we wrap up, man has the ability, man has the freedom uh, before the fall to do good and evil. But in our perversity, even though we had every incentive to do what's good, every good thing was given to us. Such a strong disincentive to disobey and do what's evil. Death was promised. It was not ambiguous. It was not questionable. We still, out of our perversity, thought, I can beat God. And that's what each and every one of us does. And we do it, and that's why the question 14, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that's where that law comes in. Such an important objective standard. It is the objective standard simply because God is God and you are not. And that's one of the biggest things. When people ask me, what does it mean to fear God? You know, we talk about the fear of God. And yeah, it doesn't mean, oh. Sometimes we use the word reverence. When my boys were growing up, you know, reverence means nothing to five-year-olds. Knowing your place is how I described it. The fear of God is knowing your place. And what is your place? He's God, you're not. When we come to grips with that, then we can begin to see obedience and disobedience in a proper context. Does that make sense? So, okay, I think we'll stop there for our lesson. We're a little past our time. Um, Any questions or uh, comments? And those were all good questions before, so... You don't have to be like Matt waving it off.
Bob. I don't think that's necessarily. Uh, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, the garden could have been all of Mesopotamia, uh, as far as we know. Uh, no, I, the only reason I take it is because it says it. I mean, um, here I go dragging the Bible into it. <laughs> so no, I, I think you know there, there, what I'm going at. Not to make light of it, Bob, is that there is biblical warrant. It's not a supposition. Uh, so we get to um, Genesis 3, but the serpent, uh, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's the promise and the temptation. So when the, uh, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to uh, the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So that's the line her husband who was with her. Why would you put that line in there if he's not with her? I mean, we all know, some people said, no, that just means that he's with her because they were like married. We've already know that. I mean, it's, you know, it's not necessary to really, but even, you know, even if uh, that's not the case, Adam is held responsible for it. But I do think that the language is pretty unambiguous. She saw the fruit, she took it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her. Grammatically, yeah, I suppose I could argue being with her meant something else, but contextually, it's very hard to imagine why that would be there. So that's why I say it. I don't, not because we suppose it, but I think we can get it right from the text. Um, and he was responsible. He could have stopped her. He could have intervened. Uh, he laid down his his uh, responsibilities as head, which men continue to do to this day, uh, and, and not take uh, leadership and not take um, responsibility and headship. Um, and, and then he actively chose to, to follow. So that's, that's the real sin. You want to follow up on that? Well, there was no, there was no redemptive aspect of it, and um, he didn't save her in doing that. If that, if that's, I, I have serious issues on, on, on whether that is what actually happened. But it's not redemptive. He doesn't save her. And you don't see anything Christ-like. Jesus never has to go against God in order to do something good. There is never, uh, you, do good, you do good by doing evil. Um, that's, a, that's a utilitarian, you know, yesterday we were watching with Gray wanted to see Star Trek Three, search for Spock, follow up with Star Trek Two. For the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one, right? Or the needs of the few. That's utilitarianism. That's Jeremy Bentham. That's 1780s all over again. It's the idea that we have enough knowledge of everything that we can weigh circumstances and decide what may be good, and we weigh it based on needs. The, the, oh, I should say this, and we'll end with this. The beauty of understanding that sin is defined by the law of God or obedience is defined by the law of God is we no longer have to, I'm not saying so no longer, we don't have to try to weigh it all. People today do not define sin in relationship to the law of God, the objective standard. They define sin in relationship of, to whether it does you harm, right? So pedophilia is a sin because it harms children. Now, by the way, that's true. I'm not denying it. But that's not the ultimate thing that makes it sinful. It makes it sinful because God has said that you're not to do it. 
And there are people now arguing that maybe it doesn't do all that much harm. Now, that's, can I use the word perverse? Yes. But if you think, oh, well, you know, that sounds perverse, it'll never happen 25 years ago. Homosexual marriage, blah, blah, blah. And now people, you know. So we will get to a point where there will be enough people saying that minor attracted persons and all this other junk that's being said is, is okay. When the definition is what causes you harm, that's a moving target. Because what causes you harm may not cause you harm. You see? So it's, it's always subjective. And the beauty of the Word of God is that it is objective. I mean, the Ten Commandments, they don't move. There's a reason they were written on stone. Just to, symbolic. I mean, obviously, Moses broke it like within ten minutes. <laughs> but it's symbolic of the fact that they are immutable, unchangeable. Yeah? All good? Okay, we really are going to have to stop there. Uh, but a lot, we can keep going. There's a lot of good stuff. I'm, I'm not sure I buy the whole thing that Adam, you know, if she's going down with the ship, I'm going with her. Um, I don't know that there's necessarily anything other than uh, you talk about the perverseness of heart. That does bring up one important thing. Eating the, tr- the, the, the fruit itself, the fruit was not magical. It didn't have anything, you know, chemical composition that when they ate it, it transformed them. It was the choice that they made. And yes, the perversity of their heart at that point, they had already sinned. The grabbing of the tree and eating it was simply the, the, the acting out. You act according to your wants and desires and your nature being perverse at that moment, you chose the tree. I mean, you chose to eat the fruit. Does that make sense? So yeah, the, the moment of sin was not, the moment of sin was the desire and I'm gonna act on it, right? Because if you stop them, I mean, in our own jurisprudence, we see that. If I take a knife and I go, plunge it in your chest and somehow you right next to him go, grab my hand and stop it, we still charge that person with what? Attempted murder, right? Because we know it starts here, not the actual action. Okay, let's stop there and let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get ready for, uh, for worship. Father, we uh, confess that we are perverse people. That's a hard thing to say. Everything in our culture tells us that we're not. Uh, undoubtedly, we will be uh, 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 labeled as, as hateful and as uh, all sorts of other labels because, uh, let's face it, we want to do what we want to do. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, we see it in our children when they disobey, but it's in our own hearts. We do what we want to do, and we don't want anyone telling us otherwise, uh, least, of you, least of all you, O oh God. That's the perversity of the human heart, and we're thankful for the redemption that we have in Christ that has restored to us the ability to do good, uh, but we confess that we still have that ability to do evil, and it's uh, uh, something we exercise altogether too often. We are sorry for this. It's why we confess our sins every Sunday, and we pray, Lord, that as we enter into worship, that again, you would hear our, both our heartfelt praise, but also our heartfelt confession. And we're thankful for the redemption that we have in Jesus, and we look forward to the fullness of that redemption when he returns, and we are restored perfectly and given the ability uh, or rather have the ability to do evil withdrawn. That is a day that uh, is exciting and to which we look forward to and which is our hope as believers. Until then, Father, may we um, be truly disgusted with our own sin and not with the blood sacrifice of Christ, but with our own sin and the perversity of it may it draw us uh, more closely to the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.